Father, we pray that your spirit would be active among us now, that, that he would do his will and work in this place, that as this text is exposed before us and lays us open in our hearts, Lord, we pray that we would respond accordingly to your word, that we would not only be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. We pray that as we hear the word of Christ in the scriptures today, that we would be ready to take him at his word, to follow in obedience, to trust in faith. This is only a work that you can do within our lives. And so, truly, Lord, we pray that you would do it in an extraordinary way. In Christ's name, amen. Well, please turn in your copy of God's holy and perfect word to John chapter 4 and verse 43. Charles Colson was President Richard Nixon's right-hand man. Many of you know later in life that Colson became a Christian. But before then, he had never really taken the claims of Christianity seriously. Until he had a business friend give him a copy of C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. Colson's friend to Colson's own testimony, spoke of Jesus as if he were alive today, that if he was a real person. And it made an impact on Colson's thinking as he watched his friend, listened to his friend speak of Jesus in such a way. And it encouraged Colson to read the book, Mere Christianity. A few days later, while on vacation at the beach, Colson did just that. Listen now to the very words of Charles Colson on his reaction to what he read. Quote, I unpacked Lewis's book and placed a yellow pad at my side to jot down key points, not unlike the way I prepared to argue a major case in court. All my training insisted that analysis precedes decision, that arguments be marshaled in two neat columns, pros and cons. On the top of the pad, I wrote, is there a God? I opened mere Christianity and found myself face to face with an intellect so disciplined, so lucid, so relentlessly logical that I could only be grateful I had never faced him in the court of law. Soon I had covered two pages of yellow paper with pros to my question, is there a God? As a lawyer, I was impressed by Lewis's arguments about moral law, the existence of which he demonstrates is real and which has been perceived with astonishing consistency in all times and places. The central thesis of Lewis's book and the essay is summed up in one mind-boggling sentence, Jesus Christ is God. Not just part of God or just merely sent by God, or just related to God. He, and therefore is, of course, God. The more I grappled with those words, the more they began to explode before my eyes, blowing into smithereens a lot of comfortable old notions I had floated through life with without thinking much about them. Lewis put it so bluntly that you can't shed it off. For Christ to have talked as he talked, lived as he lived, died as he died, he was either God or a raving lunatic. There was my choice, as simple, stark, and frightening as that. 
Colson goes on to say, no one had ever thrust this truth at me in such a direct, unsettling way. I'd been content to think of Christ as an inspired prophet and teacher who walked the sands of the Holy Land 2,000 years ago, several cuts above other men of his time, or for that matter, any time. But if one thinks of Christ as no more than that, then Christianity is basically like taking a sugar-coated placebo once a week on Sunday morning. On this sunny morning on the main coast with fresh breezes picking up off the ocean, it was hard for me to grasp the enormity of this point that Christ is the living God who promises us a day-to-day living relationship with him and a personal one at that. And so early that Friday morning, while I sat alone staring at the sea I love, words I had not been certain I could understand or say fell naturally from my lips. Lord Jesus, I believe you. I accept you. Please come into my life. I commit it to you. Powerful reaction to mere Christianity. But did you catch the critical question Colson pondered. The question was this. Would he look at Jesus as merely a, histor- a, a historical figure or would he see him as God? That's a question everyone must ponder. What will you do with Jesus? To use Lewis's words, He is either a liar, a raving lunatic, or he's Lord. How do we explain if he's a liar, the influence he has had? A raving lunatic and the things that he would say about himself. Or maybe, just maybe, he is Lord. We've been studying the gospel according to John on Sunday mornings together, which was written by one of Jesus' closest followers. The Apostle John himself, who has recorded for us what he saw Jesus do, what he heard Jesus say. And he records these things so that you and I can make a decision on who we believe Jesus is ourselves. Was he merely man or was he God? In fact, John, the author of this gospel, wrote at the very end of the gospel, Chapter 20, verse 31, here's why I'm writing these things to you, that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing have life in his name. Everything he writes in this book is meant, is purposed to convince you of Jesus' divine saving work on your behalf. He wants you to know who Jesus is fully so that you can trust him confidently. So the passage we come to this morning has this ultimate purpose. You are meant to see Jesus and what he does here as the son of God. We're going to see Jesus interact with a Roman official. And as we observe what Jesus says and does with him, we're meant to conclude this man's the Christ. This man is the son of God, not just mere man in history. Just as Colson said, when he came to the realization, Jesus, I believe you. We're going to hear this Roman official say something very similar. Every interaction John records gives us another angle of Jesus' divine identity. 
We've seen Jesus interact with Nicodemus, a religious man, where he completely rearranged religious categories for this religious man. We saw Jesus interact with a woman, an outcast woman of Samaria, saying, I will give you living water for someone who was continually thirsty. Last week, we saw Jesus interact with his disciples. He says, lift up your eyes. Look at the harvest. It's ready. And now he's going to interact with this Roman official where he will test him with the question, will you trust me or do you just seek to be amazed by my signs like everyone else? Watch how this narrative unfolds, beginning John chapter 4 and verse 43. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, Come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. In this narrative, as it unfolds before us, we're going to see two main figures. Number one, we're going to see Jesus. Number two, we're going to see a Roman official. And as we progress through this text... Ask yourself two questions. Number one, what does Jesus do? Number two, how does the man respond? What does the man, what does Jesus do that shows himself to be the Christ? Number two, how is the man responding? Which will show us what true belief really looks like. The text begins, verse 43, after the two days he departed for Galilee. Now you remember Jesus has been spending a couple of days in Samaria. First with the Samaritan woman and then the people of the town. He's had fruitful ministry there. The lady goes into town saying, come meet the Messiah who told me everything I've ever done. And the people come and they say, we too believe. And they asked him to stay. But now he continues to travel north. That was his original journey up to Galilee. He's got about a two to three day walk left to go. Jesus is once again headed to Galilee. Now, verse 44 has an interesting beginning. Look in your text. It begins with the word for. That's a word that connects 
this verse 44 to what has been most immediately said in verse 43. It explains why many times this word for in scripture can be used with, as the word because. When authors in scripture use the word for, they're connecting it to what they just wrote. So here verse 44 ties back to verse 43 directly. It's not just a progression in the text. There's a connection that John wants us to see between these two verses. So look what verse 44 says. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. Now this gets a bit technical, but hopefully you read your Bible like this, believing every word is inspired by God, seeing the connections that he wants us to make. Given the fact that these verses are connected, in effect, this verse is saying this. Jesus departed for Galilee for, because, Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. Now, I don't know about you, but that seems like an odd connection to me. And Jesus is going to Galilee for, Jesus had said, a prophet's not welcome in his own hometown. Why would that be a reason to go to Galilee? It seems like a reason to avoid Galilee. If people don't receive him with honor there, why would he waste time there? But John is clear, Jesus is going to Galilee and the reason he is going is somehow connected to him not being received with honor there. You see that? Jesus departed for Galilee for Jesus had testified that a prophet is not has no honor in his hometown. In other words, he's intentionally doing it. He's intentionally going to a region where people do not honor him as they should. Now, I'll be honest. When I first read this this week, studying it, it stumped me and I thought, okay, maybe this word for can be translated as and so that it creates some distance between the two verses like Maybe Jesus is going to Galilee and it's a region where people don't honor him. But I looked up the original language here and in fact, this word here is for. It's not and. And this word is here. I don't know if whatever translation you're using uses the word here. In the original, there's a word here that connects it to verse 43. And the word is for. So when John uses the word for, he, he wants us to see that Jesus is not just going to a region he's not honored in, but that's the reason, at least one reason why he's going there. He goes to Galilee because he had testified a prophet has no honor in his hometown. I got a sense of this, no prophet has honor in his hometown one time when I was preaching at a church. Now listen, I'm not claiming to be a prophet nor the son of one. But I got a sense of what this may have felt like when preaching at a church one time and afterwards where a lot of people in the church had known me in my childhood. And afterwards, uh, an older man came up and said, yeah, I remember you and you were just yay high, fella. And even worse, an older lady came up and said, I just remember changing your diaper in the nursery. <laughs> I mean, what's the likelihood that a people like that is going to be ready to receive a message of repentance when they remember the man preaching's diaper? 
It makes sense to us. Jesus is going back to Galilee, which is the region of Nazareth. His hometown is there. It would be easy for people to withhold respect for him, the son of God, that he deserved because all the people saw him as, oh, that's Joseph and Mary's boy. I remember when he rolled around in the Jordan with John the Baptist. Jesus says a prophet has no honor in his hometown. And yet he goes there intentionally. Now it may seem strange to us that Jesus would intentionally go where he's not honored. But the next verse may be even more perplexing. Verse 45. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans, now stop right there, based upon what you know so far of what's been said. What do we expect the Galileans to do when Jesus comes into town? I mean, I expect it to say something like, the Galileans saw Jesus and didn't take much notice. No big deal. No honor for the hometown prophet. But instead, verse 45 says this, he came to Galilee and the Galileans welcomed him. And that language of welcoming him there conveys the idea that they've received him well as this person in growing popularity. And so now we're kind of in a, a point of tension. Did they honor him or not? I mean, Jesus said, people of the hometown don't honor the hometown prophet. And yet he goes and they welcome him with open arms. What's the idea here? Well, look closely at the text. The next part explains how they welcomed him. Verse 45, they welcomed him having seen, now that's critical. They welcomed him having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast. This group of Galileans made the trip down to Jerusalem for the Passover week just like Jesus did. They've now traveled back. They're home before Jesus got back. Jesus made the stop in Samaria. But now they're back home. But they saw Jesus down in southern Judea. They saw Jesus, the hometown boy, cleanse the temple. They saw Jesus in his baptism ministry that attracted large crowds of people. They saw signs he performed that are not recorded here. And now Jesus comes back into town and they welcome him. And here's the key part. They welcome him as the one they saw do really cool things. Having seen all that he had done, they welcomed him. In other words... There's a little bit of a dynamic going on here of a hometown pride they feel. You know, one who grew up right among us did wonderful things in Jerusalem. I remember a friend of mine in high school who went on to play for the practice squad of the Washington Redskins. Many in the community didn't know him personally, but at the time, articles were written all over town about this one local son of the small town of Woodruff going to play in the NFL. It's a sense of pride. And one of ours had made it to the big time. This is more of how the people are receiving him at this point. 
having seen all he had done, they welcomed him. The problem is, are they welcoming him like those people did in Jerusalem? We saw in chapter 2 where it said many people believed in Jesus when they saw the signs he was performing, yet Jesus did not entrust himself to them. Because they believe for the wrong reasons. So did the people honor him here or not? The people were certainly amazed by what they had seen. They felt pride for Jesus coming from their neck of the woods. But here's the critical statement. They did not honor him as they should for the right reasons. They welcomed him as the hometown miracle worker. They did not honor him as the son of God. In fact, when Jesus starts speaking in that way, they want to kill him. Why would Jesus go to these people where he had no honor? Brothers and sisters, notice this characteristic of Jesus. Jesus is patient with those who do not honor him as they should. John chapter 1 verse 11 tells us that he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Even the Jews in Jerusalem in the south, his own Jewish people did not receive him as they should. They're happy to welcome him as a miracle worker. But notice Jesus said a prophet is not welcome in his hometown. They're happy to welcome his signs and wonders, but a prophet's job, his main job, is not to amaze with signs. A prophet's main job is to speak, and they would not like what Jesus had to say. We're going to see that in coming chapters. They like his sign, but will hate what he says. And yet, friends, notice Jesus still comes to them in patience. He knows they're about to hate his guts. Listen, I don't know about you, but it's really easy to avoid people that you know don't like you. <laughs> I mean, we will do anything to like go on the other side of the, the, the neighborhood if we'll avoid that person. We'll be on the other side of the church to avoid that person. Jesus comes to people whom he knows will not honor him as they should and he patiently keeps coming. If you're here today and you're someone who's on the fence about Jesus, maybe you find yourself like Charles Colson was. Maybe you see Jesus as nothing more at first than a popular person of history. Maybe he's nothing more than a common name you've heard in your religious family. Or maybe he's some popular person like Muhammad or Joseph Smith or Gandhi or some other figure who everybody knows but you don't really have an opinion on. You're on the fence. This text shows you that Jesus is patient in dealing with people like you. People who don't receive him as they should. Let me explain for you just briefly how Jesus is being patient for you. Jesus has provided a book detailing his divinity for you. 
Jesus provides a church to provide a picture of change for you. I mentioned earlier, we are not perfect people. We are people who confess our sin when we fall short of God's glory. But we are people who have been changed. And you could hear of who we used to be and now whom God has made us in Christ. Jesus provides sermons like this one that calls to you to repent and trust in Jesus. Jesus provides witnesses who share about Jesus with you. That person that nags you at work or that grandma or grandfather or uncle or crazy person talk about Jesus. You think they're just a little bit weird. Jesus provides for that person telling you about him as he's patient with you. Jesus provides you breath after breath every single morning being merciful for you. And he does it day after day after day. If you're here and you're on the fence about Jesus, know he's patient. But also know the wick of patience will soon run out. All those who do not honor Jesus as the Christ will experience God's patience eventually turn to God's punishment. That's why the scripture says, on that day, the great day, every knee will bow. Every single person on planet earth who does not give honor and glory to Jesus as they should, one day they will. But right now, Jesus is patient. If you're on the fence about Jesus, don't take for granted his patience. Respond in repentance. Now, at this point in the text, we see a man enter the narrative. Look at verse 46. So he came, Jesus came to Cana in Galilee where he had made the water wine. Now, you remember this from chapter 2. Mary, his mom, the disciples, some servants saw this miracle take place at a wedding. Now, I'm unsure how widespread that has become at this point. But he's back in Cana once again. And verse 46 continues to say, And at Capernaum, which is about 10 miles away from Cana, there was an official whose son was ill. Now this is likely an official in the court of Herod. And what's the problem? This man, the text says, this man's son is ill. Verse 47 When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to meet him. And asked him to come down and heal his son. For he was at the point of death. So here's what we know so far in this brief narrative. The popularity and the fame that Jesus began to grow down in southern Judea. Has now followed him to some degree or another to Galilee in the north. This official hears of Jesus coming into town. And he knows what he's heard about what Jesus did in Judea. And so the logic is Jesus has done this wonderful work there he can heal my son. Who we are told at this point in the text is not just ill, but deathly ill. So the official comes. He pleads with Jesus to save his son. We see the man has this need and he comes to Jesus for help. And on the surface, we might think, okay, that looks good. That's a good start. I have a need. I believe Jesus can meet the need. And that is a good start. But here's the danger. I mean, lots of people have needs. 
I mean, you all this morning have your own individual needs. You have family members and friends have their specific needs. And it's really easy easy for a, a preacher like me to stand and say, come to Jesus and all your needs will be fixed. Come to Jesus and your financial needs will be gone. Come to Jesus and those health needs wiped away. There's a danger because lots of people are willing to use the name of Jesus to simply fix their need. And Jesus knows this. We already know from chapter 2, verse 23, Jesus doesn't automatically accept someone who claims to believe in him, as I referenced earlier. I mean, John chapter 2, verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem, many believed in his name when they saw signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. He knew what was in a man. So here we see this man, and he's running to Jesus for help. I believe you can heal my son. Come with me, please. But Jesus doesn't go automatically. What does Jesus do? He issues a statement. And I believe Jesus' statement here is a test for the man. Look what Jesus says in verse 48. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. It kind of seems abrupt. Man's son is on the edge of death. He's pleading for Jesus to save him. And Jesus says, wait a second. Unless you see signs and wonders, you won't believe. Friends, notice that just because Jesus is patient with those who do not honor him as they should, that doesn't mean that he's naive toward those motives. Jesus is patient with those who do not honor him, but know this, Jesus also knows when he's being used. I want you to notice a couple of factors in verse 48. First, the the text says, Jesus said to him. Jesus, notice clearly, Jesus is speaking directly to this man. However, when Jesus says, unless you see signs... That you in the original language is plural. So in effect, Jesus is saying in good old southern language, unless y'all see signs, y'all won't believe. It's an indictment on the people as a whole. As a whole, they are people just like the people of chapter 2 down in Jerusalem, only believing as they see the wonders only believing if Jesus just keeps amazing them. See, Jesus is patient with those who don't honor him, but he's not naive to when people are trying to use him. And based upon the region that he's currently finding himself in, knowing the people of this community, he says to this man pleading for his son, you want me to act, but y'all only believe in me as long as I keep doing signs. Brothers and sisters, friends in the room, this is a challenge to each one of us. Are you coming to Jesus for the right reasons? There's plenty of preachers who will tell you that Jesus will pad your bank account if you just do A, B, and C. Are you coming to Jesus for that? Are you coming to Jesus simply Because you don't want hell. 
and otherwise have no need of him. Are you coming to Jesus because, well, frankly, that's what people do around here? Are you coming to Jesus because you want a nice, neat, put-together life like a category Christian? You want a well-rounded portfolio. You got your family, you got your work, you got your recreation, and yes, we need our religion. Are you coming to Jesus because that's what your family does? You know, like good old nostalgia, going to church with grandma. This man comes to Jesus with a desperate need. It doesn't get much more desperate than this. My son's life is on the line and Jesus takes a moment to test his motive. Just imagine the scene. And if you have children, imagine the scene. Your son is going to die any moment. And you hear this man coming into town who does signs and wonders like no one else can. And so you run to him and say, Jesus, my son's about to die. He's been running a fever of 103 for four days now. He's throwing up. He's pale. He's passed out several times, going unconscious. Like, I need you to save my son. As some of you have been in situations where your child has been deathly sick perhaps in really scary situations and you know the feeling of you'll do anything to save them. That's what this man's doing. Please, you got to help me. And Jesus says, you people only want to believe when you see me do amazing things. Why would Jesus say that? I mean, doesn't Jesus know time is critical? I don't know what the illness was, but evidently time is critical. But Jesus sees a greater issue here. And the greater issue Jesus sees is, if this man is only believing while I do works and wonders, then the son and the father will both die and it will be even a greater issue. I believe the statement from Jesus is a test for the man and the test is this. Is he going to believe Jesus at his word or will he be like everyone else and only believe if he sees a sign? And so how does the man respond? Look at verse 49. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. It's almost like uh, this man just pushes through Jesus' statement that indicts the people. It's almost like he says, all right, maybe so. Maybe so, like, I've come to you, I've noticed works and wonders, maybe so. All these people around us, maybe so, we just want to be amazed one more time. Perhaps that's the case. But here's what I can tell you. My son's about to die, and I believe you can save him, will you? And Jesus says in verse 50, go, your son will live. Now look what the man does. Verse 50. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. I am so challenged by this man's response of faith. It would have been 
really easy for the man to say something along the lines of, okay, I'll go, but what sign will you show me first so that I know you're able to do it? That's what everyone else did. This is the logic everyone used with Jesus. It happened in Jerusalem, remember? Jesus cleanses the temple and the authorities come up to him and say, uh, sir, what, what sign are you going to do to show us you have the authority to do that? That's what the people in chapter 2 did. They see the signs and wonders and they only believe because they saw it. And yet, this man hears the word go, your son will live. He believed the word and he went on his way. I don't know about you, but I think I would have been asking a lot of questions. Donald, go. Your son will live. But Jesus, you don't even know where I live. Don't you have to come and touch my son? Don't you have to meet my son? You don't even know who my son is. Like, your son will live. Well, like, when's it going to happen? He's been running a fever for three days. Like, can I expect some good news in the morning? Go, your son will live. Well, there's tons of other boys in the community. Are you sure you're going to get the right one? Be challenged by this man's faith to hear the simple statement of truth. Go, your son will live. And the man just says mentally, okay. And he walks off in faith. <laughs> True faith takes Jesus at his word. False faith demands a sign. Brothers and sisters, what clear statement of truth has God given you today that he's calling you to take him at his word, but you're oh so tempted to linger around and ask questions concerning details? In that scary moment, whatever it is for you, coming up this week, in that scary moment where God has promised you in Christ, I will be with you. I don't know, Jesus, you know, that room's going to be full of people that are so much more educated than me, so much more qualified than me. Like, I don't know. What statement has God given you that he is calling you? Stop asking questions. Take me at my word. In that frustrating predicament where you have been working on that frustrating situation for months after months after months and weeks after weeks and weeks and you just don't see any end in sight. Will you take God at his word when he says, I'm working all things together for good? All things, including that predicament. And the chronic pain that just won't go away. Will you take Jesus at his word when he says, my power is made perfect in your weakness? In the anxiety, will you take him at his word when he says, look at the birds of the air, how I care for them. Are you much more valuable than they? Well, what about, how's this going to be paid and how's that going to happen? Oh, brothers and sisters, we want to be wise in how we think through things and discerning and how we think through details. But man, we want to be people of faith who take Jesus at his word. This is the point of the great hall of faith in Hebrews 11. Men and women all throughout history who have faced trying times 
Not knowing the details, but the common thread is this. They move forward in faith. Reach Hebrews 11 this afternoon. Almost every sentence starts with, by faith, by faith, by faith. So I ask you, what has God promised to you right now? Where you need to be like this man, believe the word Jesus spoke, and go on your way. This is the walk of a Christian. Trusting the word of God as you walk. I need to speed up. We're almost done. Watch how the narrative ends. Look at verse 51. As he was going down, the man going back to his house, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. Real quick, don't take for granted what Jesus did. (laughs) Jesus healed a boy whom presumably he had never met. He healed a boy from a distance that he's not having his eyes on now. He's not touching. He's not standing over. He just spoke it and it happened. This is not new for Jesus. This is easy as pie, in fact, because we know Jesus is the one who spoke the planets and stars into place. He said, let them be, and they were. How hard is it to be to say, let this boy be healed? It's not hard at all. It's not hard for anything that you have in your life right now for God to work and speak and we take him in faith. This is not new for Jesus. So they come, they say, the boy is recovering and how does the man respond? Verse 52, so he asked them the hour when he began to get better. He's starting to piece together when it all happened. They said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour Jesus said to him, your son will live. Here's the key phrase, and he believed and he himself believed and all his household. Now what I want to propose to you is, why does it tell us he himself believed? It already told us he believed and he went away trusting. This is ultimate belief, I'll argue for you. He believed Jesus when Jesus said, go, your son will heal. Be healed. Okay, I'm believing. I'm going to take him at his word. But now, he himself believed. The first belief was trusting that Jesus would do what he said. The second belief is trusting in who Jesus says he is, the Messiah of the world. Having trusted the word of Jesus, the man is now trusting the person of Jesus. The man believes Jesus is the Christ. He tells his household and they all believe too. There's a sermon there about men leading the home well and teaching the gospel well and praying for your household well so that they all believe too. And John then tells us, last verse, verse 54, this was the second sign Jesus did when he would come to Ju- from Judea to Galilee. I want to close like this. In this text, we see Jesus as the Son of God and like Colson had to examine Jesus and come to a point where by God's Spirit he said, I believe you. The Roman official comes to Jesus and just had to eventually say, I believe you. If you've never responded to Jesus by placing your faith in him, why not today be the day to examine his life and say, I don't know all the answers to the questions. I don't know all of how my life's going to work out from here. But from this moment on, I'm believing you, Jesus. If you have trusted in Jesus, the response is the same today. Will you continue to just simply take him at his word? Let's pray.
Father, I pray that you would make us people of faith. Forgive us, Lord, where we show our doubt by failing to move, by lingering around and trying to ask lots of questions, showing that we're just trying to handle things on our own. Lord, I pray that you would make us people who make wise, discerning steps of faith. We would not be irrational in how we move forward in faith, but where we have clear indication from your word, we pray, God, that you would make us a people that respond in faith accordingly. Or perhaps it would be glorifying to your name today to give someone initial faith in you. I pray that you would do that. But for believers here today, give them endurance to keep walking where they only have sight of maybe three steps in front of them. But to keep persevering, I pray in Jesus' name.